0: Michael G., Jerry S., Sean M., Jack T., and Craig S. On the program today is a returning guest. Mr. Admir Adnani has joined us. Admir is the president and CEO of Uranium Energy Corp., a North American-focused uranium restart and development company with projects spanning an ISR portfolio in Texas and Wyoming among several conventional U.S. projects, as well as conventional projects in Canada's Athabasca Basin. Uranium Energy Corp is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol UEC. Amir, welcome back to the program. Hey,
1: thanks for having me. I've got my favorite beverage. I'm ready to go.
0: Excellent, Amir. It's been a while since you've been on the program. Why don't we just kick things off here with just you giving us your view of the current status of the uranium market here, and more specifically to the points on things you are seeing on supply chain issues, fuel cycle, and also the supply response so far.
1: The supply response is a big part of this whole conversation. And uh, uh, so if we start really kind of at a high level, I mean, this is uh, a situation in the uranium market today that is uh, almost 12 years in the making. We had a a 12-year bear market where during those 12 years, Uh, there wasn't anything uh, done to develop and grow the supply side of uranium the demand side of uranium which is nuclear reactors did just fine over the last decade over 65 reactors to be exact 69 reactors were connected to the grid over the last decade so the industry on the nuclear side and on the demand side didn't lose the art and science of building new reactors and as we speak there are Uh, another 60 reactors or so under construction and hundreds more uh, planned. The industry on the supply side though, did lose the art and science of building uranium mines because no single significant new uranium mine was built over the last decade. Projects and production were in fact uh, curtailed and cut back. Uh, People were laid off. We have uh, a whole uh, set of other energy transition industries out there that today compete for the same geologists and engineers. You will have to remember that in previous bull market cycles for uranium let's say back in 2007 uh, there wasn't really a lithium industry today there's a lithium industry with pretty decent lithium prices and those are competing with the uranium industry for geologists and engineers that are already a scarce commodity but becoming even tougher supply chain bottlenecks are real post-covid and even big you know the biggest players in north america you look at cameco have announced recently issues with keeping their production levels up because of human uh, uh, resource issues, labor issues, supply chain issues. So there are real challenges I think on the supply side to react and respond to this uh, deficit, this growing deficit that we see between uh, demand for uranium approaching 200 million pounds per year, and then supply of uranium around 145 million pounds These are the 2023 forecasts for supply demand. And that gap uh, really requires not not just one or two, but probably six or seven new uranium mines to come online. As we speak, there there are no uh, significant new uranium mines under construction anywhere in the world. Uh, Companies like ours are talking about production restarts. So those are mines that were put on care and maintenance over the last uh, uh, number of years. Uh, and that's not going to be enough. Production restarts aren't going to basically solve the deficit problem that we see on the supply side. The other issue that we see is if you look at a bifurcated world as a result of geopolitical lines, you realize that there's even a bigger deficit for Western utilities. Uh, Western utilities from US, France, um, and even if we include uh, Jap- Japanese restarts in there and Japanese reactors, South Koreans, etc. cetera, uh, that they, they are most vulnerable to the issues that we're seeing emerge as a result of either potential sanctions on Russia or transportation insurance issues that lead to logistical problems for moving uranium out of Port of St. Petersburg. And that's almost 40% of enriched uranium product comes out of Russia. Russia about 40% of enrichment capacity. And even though Kazakhstan, the world's biggest uranium producer, is a separate country, almost half of its production is owned under joint ventures by Rosatom, Russia's nuclear energy company, and it sits on the border of China and Russia. So it's easier to move uranium from Kazakhstan into China and Russia than it is to Western markets. So Western markets, I think, are even at a bigger risk of supply uh, side reliability, and this is, I think, the issue that now is starting to manifest itself in the uranium price. If you and I look at the uranium price on a daily basis, there's a differential, there's a bid and a premium uh, for material if you can deliver to Metropolis, Illinois on U.S. soil at Comberdine versus even Cameco or Comurex in Europe. So there is a bifurcated market developing. This is not abnormal. You see this in other commodities, you see it in oil with The price differential between Brent and WTI or oil that you might be able to buy from sanctioned countries will typically carry a discount, so on and so forth. So this is a setup like we've never seen before uh, in the uranium business where you have a confluence of factors impacting uh, both the availability of supply to all market participants because of geopolitical issues. But this is the first time the uranium industry is having to respond to supply side needs for growth while we have high interest rate environment, while we have supply chain bottlenecks, while we have, while we have an all time high competition for skilled labor when it comes to jobs related to mining. Uh, and so I expect that, that we're gonna see as we've already started to see here, elevated uranium prices, but I think we're gonna see elevated uranium prices for much longer because the supply side response will need more time as it develops and becomes available.
0: Thank you, Amir, for that. Uh, brings up a lot of issues. I wanna come back to a few of those as we get further into the discussion, specifically more towards Uranium Energy Corp. It's a tough market out there. It's pretty beat up. Not a lot of people like to produce or can produce. That's also a challenge. And I struggle to pencil in where some of this material comes from to fill out the demand. Good setup we have in some ways, and then also just a poor state of affairs on the other side as well. So why don't we get into Uranium Energy Corp just at the high level for a moment on capital structure, and then let's get into a bunch of details. But on capital structure here, can you just cover off for us the cash on hand for the company, shares outstanding, and also the major shareholders in the company at this time?
1: so uranium energy corp uh today is a a approximately 18 year old business uh in these 18 years as a u.s company that's u.s listed only we've seen and done it all in the uranium business we uh, went basically from a business plan in 2005 to initial production using institute recovery in south texas in 2010 Uh, we got unlucky there because fukushima happened in 2011 And after a couple of years of production, we put our production on care and maintenance and uh, basically pursued uh, a decade of bear market acquisitions. And we thought that was the best way to take advantage of the bear market. But during UEC's 18 year history, uh, this company has produced uranium, we've permitted uranium projects, uh, we have sold uranium, we've restored projects, we've made discoveries, and we've made many, many acquisitions, which I'll talk about. So today, as of our latest uh, financial filings, the company had on, on hand approximately $192 million of cash, physical uranium inventory, and our uranium equity holdings, um, including names like Uranium Royalty that you're familiar with, Andrew. Uh, most importantly, UEC carries no debt. This is a debt-free company, so 100% unlevered, and of course also 100% unhedged, uh, our future production is unencumbered and hasn't been uh, contracted or committed to anyone. Uh, we have approximately 378 million shares outstanding and the company uh, has a share price of around $5.30. Top shareholders include the management team, including myself as the founding CEO of the company, along with a number of uh, resource and uranium-focused uh, funds um, like Segra Capital, uh, and uh, Cap out of Toronto, uh, Satcham Cove, and some of the larger U.S. institutional investors, uh, such as BlackRock, uh, and some of the Canadian names like Sprott Asset Management. Uh, the company is fairly uh, widely held. Uh, it trades uh, on the NYC American, and it's the second most liquid uranium stock after Chemical. Our one-year average daily volume is about $32 million a day. But in recent uh, month or two, with increased interest in the sector as a result of increased uranium prices, uh, you see UEC averaging closer to about 40 to $50 million
0: a day. Good cash position here. Obviously, provides quite a bit of optionality on a number of various plans and initiatives over there at the company. Why don't we move into the U.S.-based operations, ISR focus, and just talk about if you will, for us, uh, some of those initial production restart plans, both of course at Texas and at Wyoming operations, specifically, you know, the price conditions that you would like to see in the market to facilitate formal restart of those operations and some of the capital expenditures related to those uh, restart operations and then the duration you see to commercial restart at both locations. Also, if you see the need to raise capital in order to put these operations back online, obviously with the work chest you do have, that may not be needed, but just talk about those points for us.
1: Um, As I mentioned, UEC is a 100% on hedge company. So we have not signed any contracts with ceilings or fixed pricing. And we believe this is a good strategy in a market environment where Uh, There's a deficit. We talked about that deficit. We think there's going to be time needed for the supply side to grow. So as a result, again, our thesis is higher uranium prices for longer. And as a result, we we'd like to have that flexibility to sell uranium into the spot market and take advantage of spot market pricing. Now, just because we sell in the spot market doesn't mean... We may not have contracts we could uh we could have contracts, and we you may see us have contracts, but those contracts basically don't have pricing that is fixed or capped. Uh, pricing is what we see in the market. We want market related pricing for our company and shareholders. as a result, we want to see the spot market for uranium above sixty dollars a pound. Obviously, it's there right now. We want to see it therefore a couple of more months. So that takes you to the end of the calendar year before we make a production restart decision. So we are on track right now, whereby we could very well be in an exciting position come January to announce production restart, because by then we would have had the benefit of three to four months of these elevated uranium prices. Of course, our threshold always was $60 per pound, Obviously right now the price is over $70 per pound. That's obviously very good. We're very happy with that. And um, suspect it'll probably stay around these levels uh, come January. Uh, And uh, from there, the production restart that we're planning focuses on our US assets that are uh, all uh, basically in-situ recovery projects in Wyoming and Texas. We do have some hard rock assets in Arizona, but that's not the focus for production restart. Uh, in Wyoming and to kind of really inform the listeners about what gives UEC the advantage and the ability to be in a production restart, uh, it it really is twofold. Number one, as I mentioned, we're an 18 year old business. We have the technical and operating know-how to build and produce uranium using in-situ recovery. We've actually done it. We're one of the few companies out there today that can say as a management team, as a company, we have produced uranium in the last 10, 15 years. And so our technical know-how, our operating experience definitely is an edge. But so is so are the acquisitions that we made. You know, we made an acquisition when uranium was at $35 per pound before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, of a business called Uranium One. Uranium One Americas was wholly owned subsidiary of the Russian government, 100% owned by Rosatom, Russia's nuclear energy company. And uh, this is a business that the Russians had assembled on U.S. soil, really putting together the best and biggest uh, projects in Wyoming, in this company, over a decade-long consolidation effort by the Russians. It was always a bit uh, curious to everyone how the Russian government was allowed to own these assets on U.S. soil, but they did. And about a year before their invasion of Ukraine, they ran a global process to sell these assets, including a fully licensed processing plant, four fully permitted mines, one mine that was in production until 2018. Uh, you would, If you look at the what if this had cost the Russians to accumulate, it would have been close to $2 billion over 10 to 12 years. At uranium prices of $35 per pound, we paid 112 million cash to acquire this business. And at the time, I have to say it was a big bid, it still is a big bid, that's a lot of money Uh, But it put us in a position where uh, we acquired assets that today have incredible scarcity. It takes a long time to permit. Uh, Of of course, there's a major re-rating on acquiring assets at $35 uranium when uranium is now at $74 per pound. And um, this acquisition of Uranium One certainly transformed UEC uh, into uh, America's leading uranium mining company, particularly with the ISR. Focused, which is what uh, we believe is the way forward. Uh, and so when you look at that acquisition and, um, of course, again, this acquisition was closed before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So, of course, in hindsight, it also became a bit more clear to us as to why the Russians were selling. Uh, but this, that certainly today is where production restart for UEC can be accelerated. The Christiansen Ranch mine was in production until 2018. Uh, the irrigatory processing plant was processing uranium up until recently we had a toll processing uh, customer so the plant is in great shape the mine is in great shape up until recently we've also completed refurbishment and upgrade work at these facilities we have three additional fully permitted projects in wyoming this is all in the powder river basin of wyoming for the benefit of your listeners uh in-situ recovery of uranium is responsible for 45 percent of global production Kazakhstan as a country leads the way. Outside of Kazakhstan, especially in the Western Hemisphere, more uranium has been mined using the in-situ recovery method in Wyoming than any other jurisdiction. Wyoming has a 40-year history of this method of mining. Uh, Over 250 million pounds of uranium has been produced here. So this is a state that understands uranium mining, has the right geology, has the right uh, regulatory framework. We have fully permitted projects and the geology is amenable to the low-cost in situ recovery method. So, UEC, again, is in that very unique position where we're not out there raising capex financing to build a mine. The mine, the processing plant that we're restarting production with uh, next year are, are built and ready to go. And that's a major advantage because, again, we not only uh, save that capex, but we shield our investors from uh, not being exposed to today's high interest rate environment, we're building any infrastructure, be it a mine or a mill or a processing plant, is going to be exposure to interest rates, engineering risk, construction risk and potential delays. We don't have those risk factors here. So I think we're in a very good position. We will start with Wyoming first uh, and uh, that, that will be uh, around the mid twenty twenty four event in terms of when initial production can restart, and about a year after that we will look to restart the Texas operation. This is all obviously given our team and company ability to ramp up uh, we have to hire we have to get people in place and so you might be wondering well why doesn 't all why, why don 't you just you know start it all at the same time and there 's a bit of a staging to make sure that we are uh, adequately staffing and uh, growing this production for years to come.
0: On the ISR projects here, operations in the US, talk about where you see that all-in sustaining cost per pound coming in. Obviously, it's going to be different between South Texas and Wyoming, of course, but just talk about what you would expect for all-in sustaining cost per pound coming in once you guys get to steady state commercial production, give the audience a little bit of a flavor on. You know the leverage. eighty dollars ninety dollars uranium is certainly going to come. Maybe just talk about what you think that cash flow looks like?
1: You know ISR projects again have have a benefit of low capital intensity. The upfront capital requirements are typically just um, once you've built a processing plant, you're talking about drilling vertical water wells, you know down three, four hundred feet uh, from surface. And so you're drilling and casing most of the time. That's most of your development capital. Um, you know, we suspect, and it's this should be really no surprise, but when you look at uh, US ISR projects in Wyoming in particular, you look at other companies in the sector as well, in the Powder River Basin, in the Great Divide Basin, historically, all in cost has come in around 30 to $35 per pound. We suspect in 2023, going into 2024, those numbers are probably gonna be closer to $40 per pound uh, in terms of an all-in cost of production. Uh, and uh, uh, again, this is uh, uh, adjusting for some inflation. This is adjusting for uh, just a higher cost environment that we, that we live in today. So you can see from that kind of base what the, what the leverage is to uranium price. That's a decent margin at $60, which is the restart threshold that we had in mind, but it starts to look very attractive at 70. And um, of course, anything above that, uh, just these projects, I think start to uh, look like very healthy operations. Um, Again, for the benefit of listeners, or if you're new to uranium, for most of the last decade, uranium prices were not just less than $40 per pound, they were less than 30, and for even a period, less than $20 per pound. So that's the reason why these projects were put on care and maintenance, uh, were uh, below their marginal cost of production, but we just have a very different environment today. UEC's uh, license capacity is uh, roughly 8 million pounds across Wyoming and Texas. That's our annual license capacity. Total in-situ recovery amenable resources that are SK 1300 compliant uh, is around 100 million pounds in all categories of measured, indicated, and inferred. About 75 million would be measured and indicated and 25 million or so would be inferred. So this is the largest resource base in the country of any company that's in-situ recovery amenable. Uh, and a majority of that is fully permitted as well, all in Texas and Wyoming. Uh, Andrew, I don't think initially the target is to get to obviously that full license capacity, but uh, over a four to five year timeframe, we would look to ramp up the production. Uh, and you know, even if we're able to get to 70 or 80% of our current license capacity, uh, that would certainly make this um, uh, the, not only the largest U.S. uranium company, but definitely a top five, top six uh, globally, uh, and also just the fact that the production has very high margin uh, and uh, uh, and no significant capex requirements since most of it is already built. Uh, this, this would be, uh, in my opinion, one of the strongest projects out there anywhere in the world uh, in terms of financial returns, but also uh, the timeline to production being uh, basically within the next uh, 12 months.
0: Good points on the license capacities and the time frame we're looking at here. And, you know, as you know, the U.S. is uh, various facilities, conventional ISR, what have you, has always generally never gotten to those license capacity numbers. Uh, not saying it's not impossible, but definitely it's been a challenge in previous periods and obviously past cycles.
1: Let me comment on that because you, you raise a fair point, but at the same time, to be fair to the industry, the uranium price in the last 20 years has really not had a sustained period of strong prices where US companies can really grow into. Uh, like we must remember that over the last 20 years, we had the 06 07 bull run, which lasted all of 12 months. And we had the 2010 uh, rally that was starting to take place and was cut short because of Fukushima. So in regular commodity cycles, you know, you might have three good years and four bad years. And in uranium in the last 20 years, we've had 17, 18 bad years and two and three good years. And mining just takes longer than that. And the U.S. industry in the last 20 years has not had sufficient runway with stronger prices for more sustainable periods to be able to really ramp up production. And if we go back to the 60s and 70s, where there were sustained prices for longer, The U.S. industry did get up to producing above 40 million pounds per year collectively and it is capable of doing that we just need the right price environment for uranium which collectively in the last 20 years we haven't had
0: and obviously if we keep that pricing for a long period of time you'd finally attract the skills and people etc to finally get to that level as you said it's going to take a number of years to get there you have to obviously attract talent to the industry as well and Typically, they don't show up overnight, as you know. It's going to be very interesting here to see how things go on the production front. And the U.S. Uh, pretty much wasn't even on the scale last year as far as production goes globally. It'll be interesting to see what kind of response happens as we turn over in the cycle here. And, of course, policies change and the bifurcated market and all the various other parts that have played in here. With that, um, just on the capacity side and you know, excess capacities, mere, obviously you guys are looking to fill that excess capacity as you ramp up in the four to five years ahead once steady state commercial production happens. Talk about that excess capacity. And also, let me just couple it with under the prior ownership there, which was Uranium One, had a, a toll processing agreement with Peninsula Energy that was done, of course, under Uranium One for the facilities there in Wyoming. But just talk about you know excess capacities. Will you guys look to toll process in the future? And of course, that decision to not do toll processing at this time.
1: There's certainly excess capacity, both Hobson and Irrigary are fairly large uh, operations and plants. Uh, You know, Hobson has a 4 million pound license capacity. Uh, Irrigary is at two and a half million right now, but we're in the process of increasing that to 4 million as well. Um, At Reno Creek and Moore Ranch, we have two additional locations where we are actually permitted for having a central processing plant. So this is a company uh, that today, I mean, the the, the first phase of my uh, life at UEC when we were getting going was all about permitting, permitting, permitting. It takes seven to 10 years to permit these sites. Today, we're really lucky because again, we have the two permitted facilities at uh, Hobson and Erigiri, but uh, seven satellite projects that are fully permitted as well for development and production. So we're lucky where we're not sitting here talking about permitting, de-risking. And uh, really, I think that's an important issue. So with spare capacity in the long run for any company, uh, and this is more so true for ISR, I think in conventional mining, mills like the feed they can get from third parties because mills are very expensive operations. Conventional mining and milling is just a different kettle of fish than what we're talking about. And with ISR processing, there just isn't the same kind of attractive business case for having third-party processing. I think for sure, if we see a strategic objective uh, uh, around doing a third-party toll processing using spare capacity, we would consider it. Uh, but as you pointed out, I think the example of the one contract that uh, that was there that predates UEC, and as you pointed out, it was there from the Uranium One days, uh, there was just um There was no business case there. And frankly, uh, UEC needs to be focused on our own production restart, which is why we decided to terminate that one contract. And these contracts on total processing, frankly, are mutually uh, possible to terminate. So it's not just our right to terminate. The other party can terminate as well with the exact same notice and and right. So it's a two way street. And I think any company that wants to plan production in a sustainable fashion needs to be able to support its own uh, uh, processing infrastructure. That's what makes a good business. But our realization, uh, and I'm, I'm, by now we've talked about this many times, uh, our realization again is the fact that with scarcity of talent and labor, um, that talent and labor at a time of fundamental kind of shifts that you're taking as a company, i.e. going into production, needs to have a 100% focus factor, right? And so when there's really a shortage of people, you really think about how to make sure their time is invested um, on behalf of the company in a way that most benefits the company. Uh, We see that for UEC today being all about production and production restart of our own assets from our own minds and our own projects and anything else is just distraction that we can't afford to have.
0: Yeah, appreciate your comments there Amir it's always a challenge whether it's the timing of operations whether or not you want to be in operation at this time versus you know as you said in 2024 deposit types chemistry there's a lot of different things obviously these things are set up for certain deposits interesting on that piece of it too so there's always lots of other pieces that kind of play into this and it's just not as simple as it looks or a light switch flip if you will on some of these things there's a lot of work that goes into processing material just to discuss um some of the Acquisitions uh, that we didn't cover let's move outside the u s for a moment and talk about maybe some new large project developments that you guys would have uh, in the pipeline potentially here. What you see is the first project that would be advanced on the conventional front let's focus in on Canada perhaps uh, what do you think the time frame would be? What do you think that first project would be, and just overall plan on new builds?
1: The trend that again we've been paying a lot of attention to is this trend of Western utilities uh, looking to diversify away from Russia. This again is a trend that I think has uh, gained a lot of momentum uh, since the invasion and as 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 the issue with the war has just continued to go on. Um, and so really kind of looking at our historic kind of presence in the US where as a business we've been there for the last 18 years. We felt it was a good time in the last couple of years with uranium prices still still in the early stages of the recovery, we felt there were attractive acquisition opportunities to also enter Canada's Athabasca Basin. And the Athabasca Basin, for the benefit of the listeners, is, is a more of a high-grade conventional area where historically the production has all been uh, utilizing uh, conventional mining methods, underground mining methods. Uh, it's an area where in conventional mining, the, the old saying is great as king, and the grades here are about a hundred times higher than the average grade of uranium anywhere else in the world. So this is kind of an unusually high-grade area, good good, long-standing history of uranium mining, and the world's kind of number one, number two largest uranium mines, uh, Cigar Lake MacArthur River, are in this part of the world. So we we felt that was strategic and certainly important if UEC is to um, really position itself as a as a top name, as a go-to name in North America with reliable North American supplier to be able to have both U.S. and Canadian assets. And the way we've kind of constructed the portfolio is to say we believe U.S. ISR projects are going to be faster to take into production. They're permitted, they're lower cost, lower capex. And so we have exactly that in Wyoming and Texas. But we're now building this pipeline of resources in Canada that have Uh, multiple kind of avenues of growth in front of them, which I'll talk about, that gives the company significantly more leverage to uh, higher uranium prices and future production from the Canadian side. Uh, And um, the Canadian side uh, uh, came together for us through two acquisitions. We acquired a publicly listed company called UEX, and we acquired uh, an asset, a single asset from Rio Tinto called Rough Rider. Uh, UEX was a publicly listed company that had been around for 20 years. It was originally created as a joint venture between Cameco and Pioneer. Uh, The land and the projects that they had been able to get uh, their hands on over a 20-year period was quite exceptional. Uh, Athabasca Basin today uh, is a very coveted location to be in. It's like getting your hand on real estate on Fifth Fifth Avenue. Every, every, Every block is taken and so if you could pick up land 10 years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, it would surely be more attractive locations than what's available today. Uh, so we saw a very attractive target there in UEX. They had multiple projects, multiple joint ventures, bits and pieces of stuff, stuff they owned 100%. So we we acquired UEX and that was a very timely acquisition. That was, a uh, again, a uranium price around $40 per pound. And with uranium prices around $45 per pound, Uh, when Rio Tinto was looking to exit the Uranium business globally, uh, we uh, were able to acquire Rough Rider, which is a project that Rio had got into a bidding war over with Cameco in 2012, Uh, paid $640 million on it, taking it to mine development, another $140 million on mine development, and ultimately decided for a company the size of Rio Tinto, which is almost a $100 billion company, that um, the uranium industry was just not big enough for them. And uh, so they were getting out of uranium. Um, They might change their mind with uranium prices at 100 or $150 a pound, but at $45 uranium prices and lower, they were exiting. We paid 146 million and acquired uh, Rough Riders, So that's one that we own 100%. So that project in particular, Andrew, gives us a pathway to production that could be five to six years out, but five to six years, for us is great because the next five or six years, we're busy growing our ISR production in the US. So it's wonderful to have a project uh, just in one asset in Rough Rider that in five or six years from now can come in and can add to that US production. It's on the east side of Athabasca Basin, near infrastructure, near an airport, near hydroelectric power, very close by to where Cigar Lake MacArthur River are. And it's a high-grade resource. It's a, approximately almost 70 million pounds of resources at grades ranging from 3.5 to 4.55 percent grade. Um, I mean, these are just uh, unusually high grades. Conventional mining in the U.S. by comparison, the grades in the Colorado Plateau where conventional mines are are typically between 0.25 to 0.35. That's the, again, the the grades of conventional mines, let's just say in the US and Namibia, conventional open pit mines are typically around 0.03%. So you're you're comparing 0.03 and 0.3 to 3% or 4%. So incredible grades and, and, and grade is really king, as I mentioned, for conventional mining. And so that's our uh, really lead project that we own 100% that we're advancing. We're actually starting drilling on that project very soon. Very excited about some of the drill targets that we have on the project. We think it can grow the resource, define the resource better, and then we can establish an economic study around it and just advance the project through the various steps of de-risking. In addition to that, we have five joint ventures in Canada and Athabasca basin with the chemical uh, French government's Orano, and another uranium company called Denison. So we have five active joint ventures now. Where at 30, 40 dollar uranium, these joint ventures were frankly idled because companies didn't have the financial interest to develop them. At 70, 75 dollar uranium, these are projects that become interesting, especially for Orano, that was getting a lot of its production from the country of Niger in Africa. Uh, uranium exports out of that country have been halted. There's uncertainty around it because of the political situation there and a basically a military coup, and that means uh, the likes of the French government will probably increase their spending in jurisdictions like Canada. We have two joint ventures with uh, Orano on large deposits. We have a joint venture with Cameco on their Millennium project. That's a feasibility stage project. Uh, and again, these, these, were as, these were part of our UEX uh, acquisition. So today, after Cameco and Orano, UEC controls the third largest diversified portfolio in Canada's Athabasca Basin. In all categories of resources, we have close to 200 million pounds of uranium here, five joint ventures, over 1.1 million acres of land. Uh, And again, I can't emphasize how difficult it is to buy quality land here. Uh, All the key concessions, projects, land has, has, has got a name on it now. So to be uh, in a span of 24 months, while uranium was still at 40 or $45 per pound, we came in fast and aggressive and basically within two years have established ourselves as a top three player in this in this uranium district, which is very strategic for global production. So between U.S. and Canadian assets, UEC today controls over 320 million pounds of uranium. That's a highly diversified portfolio. Uh, after uh Cameco for North American resources this is the largest North American resource portfolio uh, again it's highly diversified some of the other Canadian peers out there that have larger deposits are single asset companies or you have U.S. peers that are in the U.S. only so we feel we've created a very differentiated profile by saying look we've got U.S. ISR and we've got Canadian conventional projects we believe these are two of the best in class uh, types of assets for Uranium uh, globally, but it just happens to be in North America, which we really like for geopolitical reasons. And to have all of that and still be debt-free and completely unhedged, I just think it's a very, uh, I think it's the right setup for this bull market that we're entering here for Uranium. Uh, and um, as as you know, and I'm sure you agree, uh, this is just the beginning of probably what we're gonna see uh, in the, in the coming cycle.
0: There's a lot of things you can do in the basin for sure. It's quite crowded, as you know, mostly with just smaller juniors and There's not very many large companies up there, as you know. Lots of things you guys can do on project development, exploration work, uh, JVs, divestments. There's lots of optionality you have up there. Uh, just really quickly with Rough Rider, and then let's move on for the sake of time here. But with Rough Rider, a couple things. What do you see as a potential financing mix for Rough Rider? five six years down the road as you said, and of course you'll be in cash flow at that point on ISR operations. Uh, talk about financing mix, how you think that happens. And then with Rough Rider, because of its size, do you see that Rough Rider would be something that UEC would look to get into term contracting to underpin that type of production profile. Just talk about those two things.
1: Let, let me kind of be short and sweet on it because um it's it's just early days for Rough Rider. You know, we've won the asset for less than a year. We're really excited about getting on the project and starting a drilling campaign, as I mentioned. Once all that wraps up, we will put out an economic study. We're not here today to say that this project's going into production uh, in the next couple of years. As as you've heard me say, we're talking about five or six years out. So I think we have a very conservative timeline, all of which means give us some time to try to kind of come up with the best answers to those questions. You know, UEC, by the time it's time to build Rough Rider, Will be cash flowing, in our opinion, significantly from US assets. Um, we will have the financial wherewithal to tackle Rough Rider in more than one way. Uh, a lot of Canadian companies, Andrew, as you know, have no income statement, uh, no free cash flow, and are talking about building multi billion dollar projects from a standing start. Uh, and so we're coming at it very differently. We're going to be producing uranium uh, in the US we're gonna be generating cash flow, and then we're gonna to look to develop a Canadian project. What that means is that we're gonna have financial flexibility and more options and ways of, uh, of, of funding the capex. As it pertains to hedging, it's not so much that we wanna hedge because a project may have a higher capital requirement. We would wanna hedge once we felt the market was transitioning from being a supply deficit market to a market that was maybe reaching equilibrium. And we would make a decision around contracting really on that basis, on the basis of where we think the market is for uranium. If we see there's competition coming from other suppliers, or if the market is starting to, again, reach a level of equilibrium, then you can shift your hedging versus unhedged uh, strategy. Uh, But if the market continues to be in the kind of deficit that it's in right now, about 55 million pounds a year deficit between supply and demand, and that's widening, the whole the on-hedge whole strategy makes sense, regardless of whether you're building Rough Rider or not. And lastly, I would say, you know, again, the other thing that really differentiates UEC to our peers, uh, we, we've already, as you've seen it, uh, have established uh, record sales and profits from the sale of our inventory program. When uranium prices were lower, we weren't just buying assets uh, with pounds in the ground. We were buying pounds in a drum barrel. And we acquired close to 6 million pounds of Uranium under long-term contract Uh, this past fiscal year that we had for the period ending July 31st. uh, We sold over $160 million worth of Uranium, over 3 million pounds of Uranium that was sold. Uh, We generated close to 50 million in gross profits. The previous year, we had sold 500,000 pounds of Uranium. We still carry over 2 million pounds of inventory on hand. So this is a company that's already made some significant transitional points where We're not just talking about exploring for uranium and permitting uranium projects and maybe bringing production online. We already have an income statement. We're already generating significant sales, generating gross profits, and those numbers will grow as we bring production online, but also our available inventory is a really easy way of generating additional revenues if we continue to see these elevated uranium prices. We haven't um, uh, really, You know, talked about our inventory program, but I think it's been a really effective way of us being able to lock in profits even before we see production restart at our operations.
0: Appreciate you commenting on those things. I was going to talk about other stuff outside of US and Canada, like uh, Paraguay, for example, projects there, but let's skip over that. I want to wrap up with just a few other questions on a couple different topics here. earlier this year, you had a short seller put out a negative report on the company that made a number of claims about the company projects, GNA, etc. As you and I both know, it's quite tough to short uh, natural resource juniors that are specifically in a bull market environment, unless it's a very quick trade. Just any comments just basically on that short attack?
1: Yeah, very short and sweet. I mean, I think at the time uh, that uh, the backdrop of of that Timing was uh, the failure of regional U.S. banks and it was the March timeframe, if I remember correctly, you had banks like Silicon Valley Bank uh, and other kind of concerns that were in the market. So to some extent, I think those guys uh, got lucky with their timing where there was general weakness in the market, uh, made a number of really uh, ridiculous points uh, that were not rooted at all in any kind of geologic uh, models or technical models or financial models and basically said, they thought the share price was going to go lower. That's the call they made. And as you know, myself and our executive VP and the chairman of our company, who is a former U.S. Energy Secretary, Spencer Abraham, all disagreed, put our money where our mouth is. We bought a significant amount of stock in the open market. Six months later, we found out who was right and who was wrong. Uh, UEC is trading at um, almost double the share price where the short attack was launched and claimed that they thought the shares were going to go lower. So. Uh, short and simple. I think numbers and, and results and performance basically speak for themselves.
0: Yep. Yeah, it worked for a couple of days anyway.
1: It so, worked for a couple of days for sure, and I think <laughs> that's what they were looking for was a quick, a quick gain, a quick kind of you know drive by.
0: Absolutely. Okay, Amir. As you know, this uranium business, like many other segments of the extractive industries, have a growing shortage of technical talent. Uh, you know, engineers, chemists, geologists there just isn't much wisdom transfer. And these issues go right down to really high school level curriculum, which is pretty much non-existent in most institutions. Now, of course, we have no shortage of you know junior promoters out there as you well know, but just talk about some of the UEC efforts on this front. Let's couple this with community relations, government education, worker skills call it CSR, ESG, whatever. But just go ahead on that and just talk about what you guys are doing to help reinvigorate the shortage of technical talent.
1: Uh, it's it's really working with local colleges and universities. We've done this in Texas and Wyoming and in Saskatoon, where you basically need to um, uh, be part of that um, supply chain, for lack of a better term. We've been providing um, math and science focused uh, scholarships at the high school level for many years now, uh, especially in Texas. Our program has been uh, ongoing uh, for almost a decade, uh, making sure that you recruit uh, individuals again, then from the universities and those programs uh, down in Texas. We've done a lot with Texas A&M, for example, and now are starting to build those types of relationships in Wyoming as well. But uh, we have a number of uh, folks on the on the team that we've hired straight recently out of university uh, over the last year uh, and, uh, and or we have individuals as well that I'm so you know proud to say that 10 years ago we hired at a university and 10 years later they're still with us and they've learned the business uh, with us as we've again permitted projects, built projects, mined uranium, made acquisitions. Uh, this is how you basically build uh, that human resource capital that the industry badly needs. I think the Department of Energy has these surveys that shows um, stats around how many people work in the domestic uranium industry. And in the seventies, there was close to 40,000 people employed in the domestic uranium industry. And uh, the latest survey today shows there's a few hundred people left that are directly employed in the domestic uranium industry. So there's uh, uh, definitely, that's a pinch point, but it's definitely an exciting place. And uh, it's going to have a lot of growth in it for sure. Uh, But it's uh, one of the realities that we need to accept that uh, again, these mines aren't just going to be flick of a switch exercise where they just get built according to some spreadsheet financial model and they just magically come into production. Uh, The industry really ignored uh, the need for human resources and investing in human resources because of low uranium prices for over a decade. And prior to that, there was already a generational problem even prior to that, where Uh, uh, You know, again, we we just haven't had sustained bull market rallies in uranium really since uh, the Cold War had ended. So uh, this is a a problem, but it's also, I think, what supports the thesis that prices will stay higher for longer uh, because it will take time to really build that side of the industry in terms of people, personnel and human capital
0: all your efforts and more on this issue is definitely appreciated by everybody i'm sure amir you have a few other posts with some other companies in the natural resource sector besides uranium energy and uranium royalty but also gold mining inc gold royalty and also carbon royalty just talk briefly about these other companies if you want to and then of course you know how you split your time
1: yeah just to be uh very clear the the only company that I've been the CEO of with day-to-day responsibilities for the last almost 20 years since I founded it privately as Uranium Energy Corp. So uh, that's uh, that's the high-level comment. But as an entrepreneur, I've, I've as you pointed out, been involved in the uranium sector and the gold sector. Uh, and in uranium, very proud of the work we've done to build Uranium Royalty Corp as the as the first and only publicly listed royalty company in the uranium sector. Uh, and in the gold business, I've been extremely fortunate to uh, have have been an entrepreneur to, to build a business in the gold sector called gold mining, but then to be able to attract individuals to run that company um, that were formerly at Goldcorp. So you look at individuals like Alistair Still, who's the CEO there, and David Garofalo, who was the CEO and chairman of Goldcorp. Alistair was the head of corporate development at both uh, uh, Goldcorp and Newmont. Uh, prior to the acquisition of Newmont, uh, acquisition of Goldcorp by Newmont, these are incredible individuals in the gold sector. Um, similar to Scott Melby, who's uh, been working with me for close to a decade now at Uranium Energy and Uranium Royalty, who's been in the uranium industry for 40 years. You know, the, the key thing you learn as an entrepreneur is um, that business is a team sport, and your ability to attract top-notch talent to share the vision and the commitment that's needed to build these businesses is uh, just as crucial as how much capital you have and how good your projects are. And um, my time and focus and responsibility is um, uh, on UEC. And that's, again, where uh, it's the only company that I wear the CEO hat on. Uh, but I've been very fortunate and lucky to be able to attract CEOs and individuals to to run the day-to-days of these other businesses that uh, I was excited enough to create. And, and you know, we're obviously, um, disappointed with the way gold equities have behaved this year, despite pretty decent gold prices. But that's also par for course in our commodity business where, uh, you know, I look back and I think maybe the first time I, I interviewed with you, UEC was trading at a dollar a share. And you might think that was a long time ago. I think that was like three years ago. And, you know, here we are trading at, you know, $5 a share. So our commodity business, uh, as you know, can, sentiment and attitudes and pricing can, can change fast. But as long as companies are well-structured, good balance sheets, good capital structures, and most importantly, no debt, and all my companies, Andrew, are debt-free, um, you uh, can really make sure you protect the downside for shareholders and on the upside, have uh, a lot of torque and exposure. And that's, that's, what's, what's, that's what I think is playing out here in Uranium as well, basically.
0: Well, Amir, I think we covered most things. Let's wrap up. So for potential investors uh, who are listening in, the company has a market capitalization of about 2.1 billion US dollars. Why should Uranium Energy be considered within the institutional family office and retail investors portfolio?
1: Highly differentiated. This is the only uranium company that over the last few years took maximum advantage of low uranium prices. We did close to $600 million of acquisitions when Uranium prices were $30 to $45 per pound. Uh, We are North American focused. We're the only company that combines US ISR near-term production with fully permitted and uh, ready-to-go production uh, with high-grade Canadian pipeline for uh, medium to longer-term exposure. Debt-free, 100% on hedge, very strong balance sheet with $192 million of cash and liquidity. Second most liquid Uranium stock, after Cameco, uh, US, uh, U.S. assets, U.S. production at a time where not only U.S. utilities, but U.S. government is looking for uh, enlarging the strategic uranium reserve. We are quite proud to say that we were awarded a contract to sell uranium to the Department of Energy earlier this year. We believe Department of Energy buying will increase. We believe SMRs that are going to be built in this country by the likes of Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Sam Altman will be a whole new source of demand growth for nuclear power in the US that will need additional uranium. But already, even if we discount the US government and we discount Silicon Valley that wants to get behind the next generation of reactors in this country, uh, US consumes close to 50 million pounds of uranium, and there's less than a million pounds of domestic uranium mining right now. So this is a very compelling setup. It's a very compelling time to be in our position to talk about bringing US production online Uh, going into 2024, I think that's an inflection point and and certainly a catalyst for the company to to go through that transition. We've got the people, we've got the balance sheet and we've got the assets to do it. Um, And it's really kind of the rarity of everything that we're talking about to have uh, such a large resource space of 328 million pounds, 100 million in the US, over 200 million in Canada, no other company has that. So it makes UEC very unique. Uh, those are all good reasons, I think, to consider us. Management has big, uh, you know, big skin in the game. I've been at it for 18 years, never sold a share and added to my position, as I mentioned earlier this year, along with other members of my senior management team. So uh, management is very well aligned, uh, big skin in the game. Uh, and I think demonstrated that we took advantage of the bear market. We were very entrepreneurial, very enterprising, made those acquisitions when it mattered, build a platform. As you know, Andrew, the way, the best way to grow is to really buy at the bottom of the cycle majors typically do the opposite they buy at the top of the cycle but it's also fascinating because the only producer out there chemical with north american listing uh, trades at a major premium to nav or net asset value we trade still at a discount to nav so just a re-rating of going from developer to producer i think is also very positive and can come with a re-rating so um, those are maybe a long list of reasons but good reasons nonetheless for your audience and uh, uh, potential investors to consider. Go to uraniumenergy.com to find out and get more information uh, and feel free to contact our investor relations line. We're covered by seven analysts. All have buy ratings on the company and uh, all have fairly recent coverage on the company as well.
0: Okay, well, hey, look, I appreciate you taking the time today with us and we will expect you to be coming back in 2024 to update. And thanks again for the time, Amir.
1: My pleasure, have a good one.